Good evening. The president says he's tired of waiting as Republicans say they're ready to scrap the filibuster rule, too. A funeral for a 14-year-old girl shot by L.A. cops in a changing room. 20 years at Guantanamo. What's next for the 39 detainees still there? And calls for law in Albany demanding evictions only for a good cause. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, January 11th, 2021. Pounding his fists for emphasis, President Joe Biden challenged senators today to stand against voter suppression, urging them to change Senate rules in order to pass voting rights legislation that Republicans are blocking from debate and votes. I've been having these quiet conversations with members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet. Folks. It'll restore the strength of the Voting Rights Act of 65. The one President Johnson signed after John Lewis was beaten, nearly killed on Bloody Sunday, only to have the Supreme Court weakened multiple times over the past decade. The man who led and sided with all Southern bulls in the United States Senate to perpetuate segregation in this nation, even Strom Thurmond came to support voting rights. But Republicans today are can't and won't. Not a single Republican has displayed the courage to stand up to a defeated president to protect America's right to vote. Not one. Not one. Historically, Black Morehouse College and Clark University in Atlanta. Current rules require 60 votes to advance most legislation, a threshold that Senate Democrats can't meet alone because they only have a 50-50 majority with Vice President Kamala Harris to break ties. Republicans unanimously oppose the voting rights measures. Not all Democrats are on board with changing the filibuster rules. Conservative West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin threw cold water on the idea today, saying he believes any changes should be made with substantial Republican buy-in. With Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer setting next Monday's Martin Luther King Day Jr. Day as a deadline to either pass voting legislation or consider revising the rules around the chamber's filibuster blocking device, as they call it. Biden is expected to evoke the memories of the United States Capitol riot a year ago and more forcefully aligning himself with the voting rights effort. Biden told his audience the next few days when these bills come to a vote will mark a turning point in this nation. And the filibuster rule has a long history. Senators agreed in 1917 that a vote by a two-thirds majority could end debate on a given bill. That majority was reduced in 1975 to three-fifths of the Senate, currently 60 senators. Three, uh, three, the, pardon me, the filibuster was often used by anti-civil rights senators to block legislation. Over the past 50 years, the number of filibusters has skyrocketed as Democrats and Republicans have become more politically polarized. From 1969 to 1970, there were six votes to overcome a filibuster, the nearest reliable proxy. There were 298 such votes in 2019 and 2020 legislation session comparison. Meanwhile, conservative Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz said today he's ready to scrap the 60-vote rule himself, a surprise since Cruz once filibustered for 21 hours, attempting to block then-President Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act. The Republicans had the White House, the Senate, the House. We had every ability to do exactly what Chuck Schumer wants to do right now, and the Republican Party didn't. This is a power grab, but it's not just a power grab. It's a power grab to enable a power grab. What Schumer wants to do it on 
is a takeover of elections. And that Senator Ted Cruz. Last week, Cruz addressed another issue, this time on conservative talk show host Tucker Carlson's show, where Cruz apologized for calling January 6th insurrectionists terrorists. Well, Tucker, thank you for having me on. When you aired your episode last night, I, I sent you a text shortly thereafter and said, listen, I'd like to go on because the way I phrased things yesterday, it, it was sloppy and, and it was frankly dumb. And I don't and buy that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I don't well, buy that. For, look, I've known you a long time since before you went to the Senate. I do not believe that you used that accidentally. I just don't. It's, so, Tucker, as a result of my sloppy phrasing, it's caused a lot of people to misunderstand what I meant. The reason the phrasing was sloppy is I have talked dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've drawn a distinction. I wasn't saying that the thousands of peaceful protesters supporting Donald Trump are somehow terrorists. I wasn't saying the millions of, of, of patriots across the country supporting President Trump are terrorists. And that's what a lot of people have misunderstood well, that well, comment. Wait a I second, focused, but even you, yeah. wait a minute, hold on. What you just said doesn't make sense. Tucker, I agree with you. It was a mistake to say that yesterday. And that was Ted Cruz on Tucker Carlson's show the other day. Another show of power that former President Donald Trump holds over most Republican office holders. Meanwhile, across the nation in Los Angeles, family, friends, and community activists gathered yesterday to mourn 14-year-old Valentina Oriana Peralta, who was struck and killed by a stray bullet fired during a police shooting at a North Hollywood clothing store as she was shopping with her mother. The body was displayed in an open casket next to a large photo of the girl at City of Refuge United Church of Christ in Los Angeles. The Reverend Al Sharpton officiated and delivered the eulogy. He was joined by the girl's father, Juan Pablo, and attorney Benjamin Crump. 30 years ago, I came and led marches in L.A. for Rodney King. I come today for Valentina for yes. the same reason, police recklessness. With us, the family wanted. Ahora, now, nos preguntamos como padres. As parents, we ask ourselves. Si es justo que mi hija Valentina haya muerto de esta manera. If it's just for our daughter Valentina to have died in this way. Is the answer that we'll never get. Valentina is innocent. 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 Those that don't know how to go in a department store doing Christmas shopping and not shoot like this is the wild wild west must be held accountable they must put value on human life there was value to the life of Valentina Valentina was shopping for Christmas clothes December 23rd when she was struck by a stray bullet followed by Fired by Los Angeles police who opened fire on a man attacking shoppers. A bullet went through an exterior wall of the dressing room and struck the girl. Valentina died at the scene in her mother's arms. Police responded to the Burlington store after receiving a report of an assault with a deadly weapon, a uh, suspect attacking people. That weapon turned out to be a bike lock and a cable. And back in Washington, Representative Ilan Omar of Minnesota penned an op-ed piece published in Teen Vogue today calling for the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility to be shut down 20 years to the day of its opening. The Minnesota representative wrote that she 
would rather not refer to January 11th as an anniversary as it implied a celebration. Today is a day to reflect and to act, wrote Omar. Of the 39 remaining prisoners at the facility in Cuba, 27 have not been charged with a crime. While Congress has taken some action over the years to close Guantanamo down, Omar stressed that the prison's closure was the responsibility of the U.S. president. Shortly after assuming office, Biden vowed to try to close down Guantanamo, and in July 2021, his administration transferred one detainee out of the facility. Omar criticized these actions as not enough and said Biden would need to dramatically pick up the pace. Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby says uh, the government has made a lot of progress since at the height. High point, there were 780 prisoners at the U.S. base hugging the coast of Cuba. The administration remains dedicated to closing the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay. There's nothing, nothing's changed about that. We are in a, a review right now about the way forward there, so I won't get ahead of that. The National Security Council staff continues to work closely with us here at DOD, with the State Department, with the Justice Department, and other departments and agencies across the federal government about what that's going to look like going forward. Uh, just over three dozen detainees remain from the nearly 800 that uh, were there at its peak. So small number. Uh, not surprisingly, they are the hardest cases to deal with and to adjudicate. And so we're working our way through that right now. And that's Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby. Today, protests were held in Washington, D.C. and throughout the world calling for an end to the detention center. Mohammed Rahim from Afghanistan, 2008. Muslim. Please reach out to your senators and representatives to demand action to close Guantanamo. More importantly, continue demanding that President Biden keep his promise to shut down the prison. There are steps that the Biden administration can start taking today for justice. These include appointing a special envoy for Guantanamo closure at the State Department, working to transfer the uncharged men, and at the very least, to stop fighting to keep them in prison in the courts. And activist Helen Scheidinger is with Witness Against Torture. She was at the protest today in D.C. She spoke today with WBAI. It's not clear why President Biden is not willing to simply push for closing Guantanamo entirely. It was a bad mistake to create it in the first place. It's an extrajudicial site that has no legitimacy. At least two court decisions that the men in Guantanamo should have habeas corpus rights in Guantanamo. And yet every president has appealed, has obstructed. President Biden continues to obstruct the habeas corpus rights of the men who are there. The seven men who are being charged with anything are being tried in military tribunals that don't use the U.S. judicial system. It's a military system that's been made up for this particular situation, and it's been going on for years. And it's an impossible, bizarre structure. Defense lawyers for the men continue to raise questions because the U.S. government, the military, is trying to use evidence that they're not allowing the men to see because they say it would be a national security issue for them to see the evidence used against them. Just that in itself is a bizarre proposition. The thing that ties the hands of the government in trying the men who are there is the fact that they've been tortured and they've tried to use evidence that was 
obtained under torture when they tortured the men and ended up having them say things that they want to use against them. It was obtained under torture, and it can't be used. It's not valid. The government is having a hard time with those trials. They're never going to come to anything. Not that unusual in 20th century history anyway, a uh, racially based revenge. Your race is guilty of a crime, and anybody we punish in your race is a uh, target for us. Absolutely. That's very well stated. And in this case, the fact that all 780 men that we know of who were detainees are Muslim, that they're Muslim men, does not get mentioned very much when the mainstream media talks about Guantanamo. This has been part of the war on terror. Guantanamo is representative of, it's like a symbol of the war on terror in which the major target is Muslim people, in which uh, Muslim communities are suspect, in which if you're a Muslim, you are suspected of perhaps being a terrorist. It's a very insidious message that gets put out there. When we were at the vigil today, there was a, a young student who came to the rally and was appreciating what we were saying. He had come with some of his friends who were afraid to come over to the rally because they were afraid somebody might see them there, that as Muslims, they felt like they didn't want to be associated with a protest against Guantanamo because of fear of how they might be seen. The racism, the Islamophobia within the war on terror, within the fact of Guantanamo is astounding. It's frightening. I think it's a very important underlying aspect of why Guantanamo still exists. We've discovered since Trump that maybe as many as 21 million Americans who think that way. The bizarre thing is that that is so un-American that the idea of not having freedom of religion because your religion, because my religion is the only religion, is completely counter to the principles that theoretically our country is based on. And yet we see this phenomenon happening in our country. It's like we're going backwards. Helen Scheidinger, she's with Witness Against Torture and was at the protest today in Washington, D.C. Today is the 20th day, the 20th anniversary, the 20th annual commemoration day of the opening of the facility at Guantanamo Bay in which 780 people have been held, mostly without any sort of charges, and today 39, 27 without any charges. And those charges that have been brought seem to be based on Evidence that was um, gotten through the use of torture, which is inadmissible in most American courts, in all American courts, I guess, except for the military court that they're using down in Guantanamo. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Russia may halt security talks with the United States unless Washington swiftly accepts its demand that Ukraine and Georgia not be allowed to join NATO. The Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, warned that Moscow would soon decide whether there was any sense in continuing. That comes ahead of the NATO-Russia Council meeting in Brussels tomorrow discussing the crisis. United States and Russian officials met yesterday to seek a peaceful solution to tensions over Russia's massing of troops near Ukraine and its demands that Kiev be blocked from NATO. But the talks ended without progress. But Professor Emeritus John Quigley of Ohio State University once taught at Moscow University. There has been very little effort on the part of the Ukrainian government 
to comply with the desire of the Russian-speaking population in eastern Ukraine, which is called the Donbass, to comply with their desire for a bit of autonomy. That is a good bit of what led Russia to promote the vote that was taken, the referendum, in Crimea in 2014, which showed, I think, quite accurately that the population does not want to be part of Ukraine. Is the United States, is NATO the aggressor here? Are they pushing up against Russia's borders in a way that is unacceptable? I don't know if it's technically the aggressor, but it is certainly pursuing an approach that is likely to produce a counter-reaction on the part of Russia. I don't know exactly what that counter-reaction will be. Regardless of the uncertainty over what James Baker may or may not have said to Mikhail Gorbachev, I think there was an understanding that the NATO countries would exercise some restraint and not, would not push Russia by extending NATO into the areas nearby. Is there a possibility here of a historic trade-off that happened like happened after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis? That's possible. Anything could happen now in the negotiations that either are or are not uh, taking place. Is there a way out of this that doesn't lead to uh, some sort of horrific conflict? Oh, yes, I think there is. If the West could give Russia some assurance that there is not going to be NATO approaching as close as Ukraine, they don't have to give a firm commitment even. They don't have to forego the position they've been stating that uh, any nation has a right to join anything it wants to. But they can indicate that that is not in the future, which I think it apparently is not. There is no present plan for Ukraine to join NATO. So it's a very easy way out for the West to give that kind of assurance. Is the way out that has maybe Russian and American people liking each other, possibly? There's no reason that the relations between the peoples has to suffer through all of this. And I think you're absolutely right that there is a desire for good relations. And the kinds of sanctions that are being talked about would simply move things further back. And that is... Uh, Professor Emeritus John Quigley of Ohio State University, who is also uh, taught at Moscow University, warning that high inflation could make it harder to restore the job market to full health. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said today at his hearing uh, he's, he was renominated by President Biden and is now undergoing um, uh, seeking approval of that nomination, which is expected in front of the Senate Banking Committee, he said today that the Fed, Federal Reserve Bank, called the Fed, will raise interest rates faster than it now plans if needed to stem the surging prices of inflation. The economy has rapidly gained strength despite the ongoing pandemic, giving rise to persistent supply and demand imbalances and bottlenecks and to elevated inflation. We know that high inflation exacts a toll 
particularly for those less able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. We are strongly committed to achieving our statutory goals of maximum employment and price stability. We will use our tools to support the economy and a strong labor market and to prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched. And that's Jerome Powell speaking earlier today at his confirmation hearings. Federal Fed rate increases usually boost borrowing costs on many consumer and business loans and have the effect of slowing the economy. Some Democrats have criticized Powell, saying it's just the wrong time to increase rates because that might impede job creation. And scientists are seeing signals that COVID-19's alarming Omicron wave may have peaked in Britain and is about to do the same in the United States, at which point cases may start dropping off dramatically. The reason? The variant has proved so widely contagious that it may already be running out of people to infect just a month and a half after it was first detected in South Africa. Meanwhile, in Washington, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's top infectious disease expert, angrily accused Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, with whom he's been having a uh, ongoing feud today, of making false accusations that are leading to threats against them, all to raise political cash. Rand Paul website, and you see... Fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says, contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. So the you only have thing politically that, the only attacked thing your can, colleagues uh, and in a politically reprehensible the way thing that attacked the reputation. And that was uh, the ongoing drama or soap opera between Dr. Fauci and Senator Paul of Kentucky. Paul has repeatedly said Fauci lies about the pandemic and in a hearing uh, yet today also claimed that he tried to take down some scientists who disagreed with him. And here in New York, in Albany, a piece of legislation known as the Good Cause Eviction Bill would give tenants the right to lease renewals in most cases, including in situations where their apartment is not rent stabilized or rent controlled or which exists in a building with less than six units that would cap rent increases on existing tenants and prevent landlords from removing a renter without an order from a judge, even if their lease has expired or they never had a lease. Property owners would need to prove good cause like non-payment to kick out tenants. Today, some folks were out there in Albany chanting, trying to get arrested and make their point known to the governor. A spokesperson with the organization that is leading the charge here for this bill has some things to say. If a landlord would rather evict tenants with safety concerns instead of taking that time to fix issues in their building, they don't even deserve to own property. Maintenance workers shouldn't be secretly disposing the bodies of our fallen deceased pets, pets into the building dumpster like they did to the cat tofu after falling 31 stories. My hope is to change the window laws, create pet protection laws, and make sure we prevent further disasters like Surfside as well as the gas explosions of East Harlem and the Lower East Side. Buildings are only getting older and they need to be maintained properly. And the only way we can facilitate these changes is to organize, utilize code enforcement without the fear of ev eviction. Everyone deserves a safe home and the right to fight for it. I wish good cause eviction existed when I needed protection. But what happened to me does not have to happen to anyone else. I'm asking you pass good cause eviction. Thank you. And uh, as some New Yorkers know, if you've ever been in a building and thought you were covered by rent stabilization to discover that there are exemptions and you might not be covered, this bill is uh, purported to uh, fill those gaps and to extend 
uh, rent protection to everybody in New York, even if they're in a market rate building. And all 17 victims from a fire in a Bronx apartment building Sunday died of smoke inhalation, according to New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. The manner of death was determined to be an accident for them all, said OCME Director of Public Affairs. Julie Bolscher, the determination comes after an electric space heater sparked a fire in a duplex unit flooding the 19-story apartment building with smoke. Fire officials said the smoke was able to spread because the door of the apartment and the door from the stairwell to the 15th floor were left open, even though even though the doors were supposed to close automatically. Um, the Bronx, uh, uh, a fire expert, had this to say today. One of the biggest pieces we've learned in the fire service is closing the door. And that's an issue that sometimes getting, especially with the children's room, parents getting their children to sleep with the door closed as opposed to being monitored. But there are devices out there to help ensure that the, the spread of, of the fire is reduced. But also you have the issue of the, the spread of the toxic fumes. And that's a piece that uh, probably will show that a lot of these people died from smoke inhalation. The truth of the matter is when you're in a multifamily dwelling, I, I said this statement earlier, you're really dependent upon how your neighbor lives and how your neighbors take care of um, their home and their cooking habits or their heating habits or whatever it might be. So you're really at kind of their mercy and you need to take alarm going off seriously. And that was a spokesperson for the National Fallen Firefighters Association talking about the importance of keeping doors shut in case of a fire. Residents have been speaking with reporters up at the site in the Bronx. Here are a few of those comments. Oh, it's so devastating. I've been in the building over 30 years. My neighbors died. My neighbors died. The children died. The children, the parents, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand why, why that happened like that. But God spared me. God spared me, and, I, and I'm praying for my, my neighbors. There are children, and their lives have been taken, snatched away. Many of the people who lived in that building and were impacted by the fire were from the nation called the Gambia in Africa. A spokesperson had this to say. This is a very close-knit community. We are predominantly from one town in the Gambia called Alunghari. So we are all family. So we, most of the people here, we are all related in one way or the other. It's like one big family. It happened to be the cornerstone that we build this community around. It's our members' family. We all pray here. We didn't get the disease. We don't know where they are. We're so, trying to put all of them together in our funeral home. This is your police department. You see, this is your police department. Okay. We uh, support you. I couldn't do anything. I was just here. I couldn't even go out there. I didn't even go to the building. I remain here. Some of the voices of the Bronx after the tragic fire that killed 17 people, nine of them children on Sunday. And that's from the news for Tuesday, January 11, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.